0: Welcome to the rights of others. Uh, Thanks for joining this conversation with Olga, Raza and myself. And today we have are really pleased to have Mahmoud join us in our conversation about creating worldwide activists on on the topic of corporate accountability. Uh, Hi. Hi, Macmid. A little bit about Macmid. He's a human rights leader, researcher, and development communications practitioner with almost 20 years of experience working with national and international human rights and development organizations, uh, particularly in Africa as well as in the United Kingdom and in Europe. Um, I, he is currently with the MacArthur Foundation Fund, based in Accra, uh, which is great because he's the most long-distance guest that we've had so far. Um, prior to joining, I know Mahmoud from working together at Amnesty International and in the Secretariat, and he is an expert in economic, social, cultural rights. Uh, he has worked a lot on corporate accountability-related issues and very intensively researched a range of human rights in Ni- human rights abuses in Nigeria. Uh, and before Amnesty, he was with Oxfam GB and Concern Worldwide. So, uh, <laughs> Mahmoud, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you. Yeah, well, it's great to have you because, you know, we have really set it as our ambition to widen our guest list
1: (laughs) as much as possible. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. I listened to the first episode and I was really excited. So when you got, when you reached out, I was like, wow, I'm not going to miss this opportunity.
0: Well, part of the opportunity that if we are going to be positive about the COVID situation is that it has actually, I think, really highlighted to us that really, Access is a big deal and access to these issues. And when we focus on you know, having guests come in person, we're already creating barriers as to who we're inviting to the table to be part of the conversation. So, so, so before we get to um, what you're working on at the moment, how, how are things for you in Accra at the moment? I, I've been actually lucky and, uh,
1: to be in Accra and in Ghana during the, the outbreak of the coronavirus, because I feel I'm in a safe space. I feel I'm in a city that I, that is in control, in, in some kind of relative control, where the authorities seem to demonstrate not just knowledge of how to deal with the crisis, but also, uh, you know, interest and compassion in their in their response to, to the crisis. So, uh, and this is not just because I'm an African and being in Africa during a uh, crisis here, but uh, I'm sure you might have seen in the news when the outbreak um, started with a lot of the doom and gloom predictions of the, the hundreds of thousands of people that are gonna die in Africa. We're still alive, we're here. And uh, there were some uh, crazy uh, estimations of people uh, or cities that are going to be flooded with dead bodies on the streets, we didn't see that. I and mean, in Accra, we were actually the governments of Ghana and the authorities there we're actually leading. We are at the forefront of showcasing good practices of dealing with the crisis. So I, I feel lucky in the way being in Accra and Ghana, but also being part of a of a um, of the, the, being in the continent at a time when the continent was also leading. Positively in how to respond to global crises like coronavirus.
0: Yeah, I mean that's I think what you've said is really hits at the knob of often what is a weakness, you know, in this area of work. It is it is like, are we actually consulting in a you know with the experts, you know, and in a meaningful way with people who actually have regional knowledge, country specific knowledge and experience, particularly in the global south and particularly in this instance in Africa. So. Yeah, thank you, and I and it's for this reason it's great that you have we have you on this podcast. So so let's get right in. Um, so, Mahmoud, what are you working on at the moment?
1: At the moment, I am leading a grant making initiative that is called the Africa Transitional Justice Legacy Fund, which is a, a grant making initiative established by the MacArthur Foundation and another U.S. based private foundation to support the advancement of transitional justice in Africa, beginning with West Africa. So the fund is uh, a multi-million dollar initiative and uh, we are providing uh, funding and small grants to community-based organizations, to civil society organizations, to survivor groups in seven countries across West Africa to Initiate uh, transitional justice programs to advance transitional justice efforts in countries that are emerging from conflict or, or mass um, violence, and uh, to see how civil society organizations can support governments and local authorities to promote transitional justice and uh, promote peace building and to prevent a recurrence of conflict in, in all of these countries. And uh, the fund started just over uh, two years ago, and uh, since then, actually under under two years ago, and since then we have given grants to 42 different organizations in seven countries, and uh, totaling about 1.5 million US dollars. And uh, we will continue to provide funding support to organizations. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying working with uh, small groups and uh, going to the trenches in, the, in different parts of West Africa and engaging, but also engaging with policymakers in the continent and going back to my country, Sierra Leone, and supporting and working organizations there, Liberia. And of course, you mentioned Nigeria, where I have worked with Amnesty before. I'm still covering Nigeria as part of my portfolio in this phone. In this so it's, it is quite an exciting new role and uh, it is different from corporate accountability, but it definitely has <laughs> a lot to do with accountability generally.
0: I mean, it's it's interesting, Mike, because you really, when you started off in this space, you—I mean—you were at Amnesty. You were a researcher, so you really were the one in the field documenting people's testimonies against serious violations, abuses against them. And now you're on the—you've come to the other end of it. So I mean, the- you, I mean, can you can you speak a little bit about like sort of like what like the importance? I mean, I for like transitional justice in its way, I don't know if it's fully understood, you know, by everybody who may be listening to this podcast. So if you break it down, like let's say even in Sierra Leone, what, what, is that, what does that mean? So what is it in terms of like, what is the, what is the, the challenge you are seeking to overcome in, in, in this work and what does it mean for the people you're trying to positively affect? So transitional
1: justice in, in layman's terms refers to the measures that governments undertake to, to deal with the wrongs of the past. And uh, when countries go through wars, conflicts, mass violence, and other crises, the efforts, the measures, and the mechanisms that governments with support from civil society undertake to one, ensure that there is a reconciliation between perpetrators and victims, to ensure that um, institu- institutions that have been weakened and destroyed by either dictatorships or by the conflict are uh, strengthened and reformed, but also to hold perpetrators accountable for crimes to ensure that um, you end impunity so that people don't think they can, you can just carry on committing serious human rights abuses and violations. So this, these are the various elements of transitional justice. Efforts that states uh, with support from civil society uh, undertake to rebuild um, states and communities that are grappling with the effects of war or, or, or violence or crisis. But it, this is not just what well, transitional justice is not just uh, implemented in societies of countries that are emerging from conflicts of violence. They are also implemented in countries that are emerging from dictatorships. So one of those countries is the Gambia, for example. And, I, and the fund is working in the Gambia. The Gambia has endured 22 years of dictatorships uh, dictatorship under President Iyai Ramir. and During that period lots of human rights violations were committed by the state against its own people. So the fund um, is supporting uh, um, the, the new Gambian um, administration and civil society organizations in Gambia to recover from the effects of the, the, the Jame dictatorship period. But what's just before we had the break, uh, I was talking about my own personal experience having, ex- having witnessed the war in Syria, And uh, I, I was in Syria throughout the, 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 the 10 year civil war. And uh, I have firsthand experience of the atrocities of the conflict in that country. And uh, so at the end of the war, when the uh, United Nations and other international community partners in collaboration with the government of Sierra Leone, we're trying to help the country recover from the conflict. I was also privileged and lucky to be part of uh, the people that were trained, you know, as as an up-and-coming journalist at the time, we were trained on reporting on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the activities of the TRC in Sierra Leone. So what I'm doing now is going back and reflecting on some of those things that we, we talked about and some of the recommendations that the TRC included in the report, many of which are yet to be fully implemented. So what the fund is doing is supporting civil society organizations to first demand that the government implement some of those imperative recommendations of the TRC, but also to encourage the government to put in place transitional justice architecture. So that not not to prepare for war or anything, but to ensure that those Um, lapses that led to the war in the first place are not repeated and uh, we're supporting uh, the development of a a, a national transitional justice policy in Sierra Leone and that will that will be drawn from the African Union transitional justice policy which I talk about later on um, in, in the program but there's a broad range of things and issues that we are supporting and one of them is the, the promotion of traditional, African traditional uh, um, transitional justice initiatives where the community people come together to promote reconciliation, to promote their own form of accountability that is not just uh, going to the ICC, for instance, or the, that is not just the, the, the conventional one of going to the court. It is about adapting or, or taking advantage of all the accountability measures and mechanisms that will um, promote uh, reparation, that will promote remedy, that will bring satisfaction to those who have been affected by, by the conflict or violence or other forms of serious human
0: rights violation in the community.
2: Right. Um, this is uh, absolutely fascinating because I myself has, uh, two, have two research uh, topics um, that I've developed through my academic life one is transitional justice and the other one is corporate uh, accountability so you come together in both of them so <laughs> one of the um, I, I want to ask you two questions the, the first one uh, now and then after that I do want to uh, talk to you about African traditional justice and, and not not formal justice, but uh, first of all, this uh, link between transitional justice and corporate accountability, because I think this is um, this is a, a quite new link as such, defined as as such, this intersection, because uh, it's not only in in uh, academic terms, but also I think in policy and implementation terms. Uh, now, organisations for for long have been working on the economic dimensions of conflict and the economic dimensions of peace building, et cetera. I think it was um, Liberia's uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, one of the first ones that actually had a specific look at the economic dimension of the conflict and the intervention of uh, corporations um, in it, because obviously in the Liberian conflict, there's a lot of link with uh, rubber companies, et cetera. And and the rebuilding efforts, we tend to forget the... uh, Transitional justice, um, obviously, transitional justice is not separate from the peace-building effort. And at the same time, the peace-building effort is not separate from the economic development. And corporations are an element of that. Corporations were an element of the war, and they are an element of the peace.
3: Exactly. So,
2: yeah, uh, I would be very interested to hear your thoughts about this intersection between transitional justice and corporate accountability.
1: That, that is a very, very fascinating area of study, and it's a very um, important aspect of um, post-conflict uh, reconstruction of states, but also conflict prevention analysis. Because if you take the, the, the war in Sierra Leone, for example, and I'll come to the, the very good example of Liberia that you, that you mentioned, the war in Sierra Leone became publicized and, and, uh, and became popular in a way because of the link with the blood diamond uh, uh, conceptualization of, of the conflict. When people talked about Sierra Leone, I remember there was a time when I was working as regional outreach coordinator for Oxfam GB in London. And I was going around to universities and, uh, and groups and talking about. Uh, what Oxfam's work in in the Global South, and using the Sierra Leone as a case study. And whenever I mention that I'm from Sierra Leone, and I ask people to to um, just tell me if they know about Sierra Leone, the first thing that normally comes to them is oh, blood diamond. That for me was was quite revealing, and it shows exactly what you're talking about mm. in terms of the nexus between multinational cooperation and conflict. In Africa, especially. And uh, in, in Sierra Leone, we, there was a huge scandal. And, uh, and for those of you, those of us who worked in the, in the sector, and uh, you will remember and recall how Sierra Leone plays a very important role in the development of the Kimberley process and, and some of those other international mechanisms, and the, the transaction uh, and the, in, uh, the intervention of multinational corporations not just in feeling wars, but in also in, 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 in how negotiations happen. In Siberia, there were so many examples. We have the executive outcome, the, the mercenary group from um, South Africa, and we are stationed in the diamond heartbeats of the country. You know, when they came to the, the country to help in fighting the rebels, one of the key deals that they made was to be based in the diamond rich town uh, of Kono. And, and a lot has been written about this, the Heart of the Matter um, and write up and talk extensively about the role of multinational corporations in, 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 the, in the conflict in Syria. So we bringing it back to the issue of transitional justice and, and literature, emerging literature is now drawing extensive anecdotes and references to the role that ought to be played by multinational corporations, not just in, in, in helping to mitigate against conflict, but also in ensuring that they're held accountable for their contributions to fueling conflicts. And, and, and in Sierra Leone, we know that the war probably would have ended earlier than it, than it did if companies um, that we are working on, on behind the scenes and working with the rebels, we are not um, buying diamonds from them so uh if we want to if we want to help of, of states states want to develop policies or mechanisms that will not just prevent countries that are in conflict from um, from this conflict from escalating but for ensuring that those who bear responsibility for the crimes that have been committed within during this conflict are held accountable then the companies have to be brought in and uh, we have seen. Uh, um, a number of arguments that have been made by by civil society and other groups, and in case of Liberia, we have seen a push by the Liberian civil society for an economic crimes court to be um, be set up. This is is uh, is an indication of the demand, the growing demand by civil society to ensure that corporate accountability Plays or is considered as a, as a major player, uh, a major factor in promoting transitional justice um, efforts and ensuring that when states are rebuilding, they are rebuilding it within the, 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 the scope of ensuring that every player, not just the, the state actors, but also non state actors, as, as, and, and, and this includes companies, are held accountable, genuinely accountable for their roles, whether overtly or or, 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 um, or, or indirectly in in perpetuating or supporting um, factions in war and
2: preventing a recurrence yeah de- definitely it has to be part of the programming and and of the developing yes. of the of uh, programs and funding uh, in um, in the rebuilding of uh, societies after uh, mass violence um and then so i want to uh, pick up with the, the other point about traditional justice and and here i'll just make a little um um, parenthesis to say, well, I was in Liberia actually when the Truth Commission was uh, was um, doing the okay. Liberian Truth Exciting. Commission, and <laughs> there were also stories there at the time of fist fights between the commissioners, etc. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was quite entertaining as well as important at the time, no? but um, mm-hmm. and just, just I was in a project funded by the British Academy that was led by Professor Chandra Sriram, to whom I want to pay. A tribute from from this um mike my opportunity um who was sadly passed away uh two years ago and i just want to um you know thank her for that opportunity that that actually led me there with this project on the rebuilding of the rule of law and say a big uh send a big um hug to um all all my friends colleagues and everybody that that Chandra touched so much so in that project one of the things that we were um, looking at was how did the program in the UN rebuilding um, of the rule of law at the time the rebuilding of the rule of law was the next uh, um, tag for peace building deal with traditional justice so and Mm -hmm. and we have uh, you know, in all West Africa, we have traditional justice that actually cross horizontally through all the countries. It's not; it doesn't yes. uh, distinguish between barriers and uh, between uh, borders. Sorry, and we also have in Liberia, in particular, yes. we had this. Uh, uh, it's actually formalized uh, traditional justice. There yes. are traditional justice courts, and there are exactly. um, uh, you know the uh, specific um, uh, regulations, etc. So. Mm-hmm. One of the main, uh, our, our big grappling at the time was how to ensure that traditional justice has a place, obviously, in, within the transitional justice process without jeopardizing some of the basic principles of the democratic reconstruction and uh, equality and rights for all. So. Traditional justice. Some traditional justice practices are discriminatory uh, against women, against children. Women, they even, yes. um, you mm-hmm. know, may jeopardize physical integrity, etc. So, um, mm-hmm. what is the role of traditional justice? This is ten years on since I started this uh, now, and how are you? How are you reconciling with these particular yes, challenges? Yes.
1: Okay. Thank you very much, Olga. I think that is, is a really uh, important question because a lot of debates have been had around how mainstream uh, traditional African mechanisms for holding people accountable into uh, um, the kind of conventional uh, justice mechanisms and systems to hold people accountable. Now, and, and if you've pointed out a few things about the uh, the risks associated with 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 this particular uh, process, and I'll give a few examples of the the well known well-known ones. You know, the in Rwanda, the market in Uganda, and system in Liberia, the, and and the talk in Sierra Leone, and then more recently. The Kabara and Suru processes in, in northern Nigeria. Now, for for years, for perhaps for decades, you know, Africa has had its own ways of dealing with conflicts and crises, ways of dealing with uh, of resolving conflicts. Now, the alternative dispute resolution mechanisms that have been existent in, in the continent have not been fully um, analyzed and studied to, in a, in a way that will help states to, to shape some of the rough edges of these mechanisms. And so when, when many of them were introduced, they were introduced at, um, in a way that um, kind of raised a lot of questions, raised a lot of questions about the, the impact it will have on certain demographics, and, uh, and in this case, women and, and children. And I remember a lot of critique on the on the Gacha-cha court system in Rwanda, and, uh, and how, how some of the lapses. And that's because transitional justice has been very uh, Western-centric. So when people come to the continent and to, to um, observe and, and assess the mechanisms that um, government in Africa were undertaking to deal with the wrongs of the past, we were looking at it from the lens of the West, Western prison. So most most of the criticism came from that. And and there was no no, um, space or um, or, uh, compromise to to allow the process to evolve, to allow the processes to to learn and and, and develop. So in in, in the case of Sierra Leone and 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 many other countries, people were simply adopting the, the South Africa Truth and Reconciliation Commission when at, uh, developing transitional justice mechanisms. But now, as a result of the experiences that have been tried and tested in various countries, and, and, we can, and this is not just in sub-Saharan Africa, it's also in Northern, in, in Northern Africa, in places like Tunisia, where people are using mechanisms that have been proven to work. Now, because the reason why a, a, a number of us are uh, supportive of some of these mechanisms is because one, They they speak to the reality of the African context. And they also try to accommodate people's uh, interpretation and conceptualization of what justice means. Now, justice has different meanings to different people, and and that has to be recognized and acknowledged. But we cannot use a one-size-fits-all to deal with um, issues on um, justice, especially when we are um, um, dealing with wrongs of the past, whether it's serious human rights violations, conflicts, or mass violence. So that is one. And, and, and I think the mechanisms in Africa take recognition of that, they take strong cognition of, that, of the, 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 the variety of justice uh, interpretation and, and, and connotation. So if you talk about um, the Fumble talk initiating, for instance, Fumble talk is, is a Creole word meaning family conversation. The war in Sierra Leone was a, 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 an internal conflict, even though it has international dimension, which means it was conflict between Sierra Leoneans. And, and in Sierra Leone, we all consider as one family. So when, when a family has a dispute, they have to discuss it at the family level. So the Fumble talk was using the, the they, they, uh, the family um, analogy to deal with the conflict between family members. So they, they, they brought people together, different and, and factions of the world, the rebels, the civilian military and the know, this was a civil militia group. Everybody came together around a, a bonfire that the, the perpetrators will say what they did, ask for forgiveness, and the victims that they, that they perpetrated these uh, violations against will say, you did so and so to us, you burnt my, my family's house, you destroyed our, our farms, and uh, we want you to help rebuild this and do this or do that. And they will, they will also um, agree, they will, they will kind of share their grief, but also forgive. So promoting, um, forgiveness and reconciliation was one element, but also the the, the just the acknowledgement for somebody to come and say actually did wrong and i 'm sorry for what i didn't want was a form of justice for the for the victims so for For a lot of African contexts, these various elements of justice um, are evolving people are now adapting them and ensuring that those discriminatory um, processes that you mentioned where women are not allowed to speak, for instance in a gathering of elders, those were addressed and changed. Now you have situations where women will come out and speak or you create spaces for them. We are supporting an initiative called Bantaba, Initiative in the Gambia, where it is a space for just the women, so that the traditional and cultural practices that prevent women from speaking in front of um, um, the elders, who are mostly men, is, is um, addressed and and, uh, and and mitigated against. So it, it is developing. There are so many other areas that need to be addressed. There are so many issues that need to be dealt with, but these mechanisms have proven to be very much efficient. And uh, especially in, uh, when it comes to costs, it, they're quite cheap. And when you compare to the amount of time and money that is spent in, in uh, um At the courts, whether it's at the ICC or other normal courts it's, it's huge difference fast difference so and they're also speedy because people want to move on with their lives people want to recover you know the psycho social psychological trauma that wars and conflicts leave on people and and uh, to go through a lengthy court and, and a conventional court system does not often help you know we're not we're not Dismissing the, the idea of going to the court system, we was, you're just saying there has to be alternatives you know, to, to resolve conflicts, to, to give people respite, to remedy situations that are not necessarily uh, judicial. You know, people can get non-judicial remedies in, in dealing with um, what, they, uh, what they have experienced. So we, we, we are supporting some of these initiatives to ensure that we take the best from what works in the context in which it works, that brings together the various realities, that amplifies the voice and agency of the victims and the survivors, but that that also addresses those cultural nuances that are peculiar to the communities, to the states, and to the continents.
0: Great, so, Mahmoud and Olga, I mean, mean, it's great to have two experts on this topic of of transitional, traditional justice. peace building conflict, companies profiting off conflict. Uh, I think we could have probably about a series of <laughs> podcasts on that topic alone with a view to finding solution.
2: And let me interrupt you, Seema. A companies profiting from peace as well yeah. and from yeah.
0: reconstruction.
2: So MacBood, I want to switch gears and um, you know,
0: and it's clear that um, you know, your personal commitment, part of it is you know, a large part of it is is also comes from as as you said, being a young person growing up in Sierra Leone during the war. Can you uh, I mean, there will be people listening to this who are in perhaps a similar situation to you or or people as as Olga and i have have um, sort of had conversations who want who you know who want to understand how does someone come into doing this work? Can you speak a little bit about your personal your personal journey, like what what really got you into this work? You didn't need to become someone who works specifically in this area. You know, um, so yeah, can you speak us a bit through your, your personal journey? And yeah, that'd be helpful. So I probably
1: will say I started my journey in, uh, in human rights and in the social justice and uh, accountability sector at a very young age. I remember uh, I was in primary school when we were appointed, we were all brought together and uh, we were given posts. In those days, we were celebrating the Africa Youth Day. June 16th, every year, they celebrate, the, they call it now the Day of the African Child. And but those, in those days, it was to commemorate the, the uh, Soweto massacre in South Africa. And uh, you know, a lot of, this was the, this was the killing of students who went on the streets in Soweto to, to protest against apartheid. And as a show of solidarity countries across um, Africa and following a declaration by the, the OAU at the time, it was an organization of African unity, which is now the African Union, declared June 16th as a day of remembrance for the the, the victims of the Soweto massacre. In Sierra Leone, the time, we, we were actually on the military rule, And uh, the military decided to give um, positions, you know, positions of power to children, to young people. So for one day, I was made a minister of, uh, of the states with full powers of the minister. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the things I did was to visit the prisons, in, in, in the region that I was in and uh, released a group of women who were being detained um, and were awaiting trial. They, they, had, they had not been charged. They, in fact, they had not been charged at all. And I remember vividly that two of them were actually um, uh, mothers with children and were detained with their children in prison and that was for me was the, the, the transformational period of my life. Because I went to the prisons, spoke to those women, asked them what they had been there for, and uh, they, they told me that they, there was a fracas in the market. Somebody complained that their their, their stuff had been um, stolen during the course of this frack and, uh, and these women were the ones responsible. Taken to police and um, detained They could not afford the bail money that was requested by the police for them to be released. And they had been spending time in prison. So I I went straight to the magistrate who was also a young child at the time and asked for an order to be given for these women to be um, released. And, And then from there, we went straight to this market which had been closed and this market that these women were talking about had been closed because they protested against the previous regime. The previous regime saw this as an opposition market. So we opened it, and, and we, there was a huge fanfare. But the satisfaction that I got from helping to release these women from prison for petty crime, very, very, very It wasn't even a crime, in my, my view at the time, transformed my own... Uh, view of life, but also transform my own um, interest in, in social justice. But I also grew up in a family where I had lots of aunties, my mom's strong woman and, every, and my dad, everybody, everybody we, that I grew up with uh, have a, a strong sense of justice, a strong sense of fairness. So these have been the, by the foundations of my interest in, uh, in social justice. So I then joined a lot of um, school clubs uh, to, one, volunteer my time, and but also to engage in community intervention and community development initiatives. So when I went to, um, to cut a long story short, I went to uh, university, Joined the Human Rights Clinic. I became president of the Human Rights Clinic, and at the clinic we are also working. We're doing uh, a legal provide legal aid, working with other established human rights organizations to provide legal aid to document human rights abuses uh, on campus as well as outside of the university campus, and to campaign on the streets, to mobilize other students to demand for change at the university level, but as well as the, um, at the national level. So, and, and then I ended up becoming a journalist and I started reporting on human rights issues. So and when I was a journalist, I introduced programs that focused on human rights. I interviewed rebel warlords who had come to the free t- uh, to the city uh, at the time and questioned them on the need for them to be held accountable. I remember one, very important interview that I did that actually stuck mm-hmm. in my head was when I was interviewing a, a former spokesperson of the Revolutionary United Front, that is the RUF rebel group in, in Freetown. And we were talking about the special court for Leone, And I was asking him mm-hmm. why he doesn't, why he, he thought that he should not be facing um, the courts as, as, a, as, a, as a, um, a, a, a defendant at the time and how he was furious. And, and it was quite a shocking experience for me because this man did not want to be questioned, did not want to be held accountable. And so my, my that journey continued from primary school to secondary, to university, to me being a journalist, and then to going into the development sector, because even when I moved from journalism and went into development sector, we, that, that was when I the period we were talking about doing development from a rights-based approach. And uh, so the, the journey just continued, you know, using different approaches, different sectors, but with the same focus on the same goal. The, 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 the driving force behind it was the need to promote fairness to address issues around injustice. you know, the, the scale of injustice that you see growing up in, 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 in parts of Africa and like in Sierra Leone that I, I saw, will, will, it was hard for you not to be involved in one way or the other in, 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 in ensuring that you prevent this from, from continuing or okay, in challenging authorities, in speaking out. And so uh, as a student's union um, person as well, so as, a, as a student activist, these are, we challenged the excesses of authority. We challenged the excesses of the state. We marched and protested and demonstrated, you know, to ensure that our voices are heard and that the government and, and the authorities take action to right the wrongs that um, were being perpetrated by due to their rights, by the very people who were supposed to, to do um, things right.
0: Yeah. I mean, you—you you, uh, there's always a question we ask, which we won't ask probably this time. Would you consider yourself a human rights activist? Because it's clear that you are and that's your route. Um, I want to ask you a specific question. So, Makmin, obviously in your career and in your, in your journey, you left Africa and you came to London, right? Yes. And so while you were doing work for the same uh, purpose of, of, of documenting abuses, hitting yes. at the injustice... Getting greater accountability. Um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm curious uh, as a, a, from a personal perspective because you are an African man, you are you are a black man, and you are basically yes. have come. You're working in London, and you're you know it's a very and I think you've raised earlier this this tension between a Western centric view of of how things should should work and happen. And as you know, there's been in the U.S. and the U.K. You know, I, I don't know how it's actually coming across currently in the continent of Africa like all of the racial riot the racial stand up the racial protests yes you know the the um you know all of the actions yes. that are being taken to seek justice you know by by people of color but specifically also you know the black community mm-hmm. I mean I'm interested in your you know how, how you felt this interacted with you as a professional specifically with the work that you're seeking to do sort of being uh, in a prime in, you know, in, in London and in a European society.
1: It is, it is tough. I, I will tell you that's a, it is, it is a, its its it has been a, a journey and a journey that is mixed with a lot of frustration sometimes. Uh, a lot of disappointments, because you, you go into the sector with an expectation that this is a sector that ought to be, quote unquote, clean from those issues that you will ordinarily see in other sectors. But um, some of us who've been in the sector for this long have seen and heard and witnessed a lot. And uh, I, for, for reasons of um, professional judgment, I will not mention certain names of certain institutions but I will give examples of some of the experiences that I've had because I I was also a staff rep in one of my previous places and I listened to the complaints of staff, you know, and this was in countries where um, the staff members were in the majority, you know, the the, the black staff members were in the majority, but the the entire leadership and, uh, and uh, management team was, completely white, you know, I'm trying to be mindful of my use of word here in in racial descriptions, but it it was so unequal and so, um, um, imbalanced that it led to a lot of issues that really showed the one, the, the, the disregard for diversity and inclusion, the disrespect for people of color, the, the, um, but also the, the, the level of ignorance and the, 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 the inability for people to understand context matters, race matters, color matters, people's um, understanding and exposure to, uh, to dealing with issues also matter. And as a staff rep, we dealt with situations where people uh brought complaints to us about how they have been treated by their um, white colleagues and, uh, and you, 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 I, I was dealing with one situation where the the uh, the, 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 the complainants uh i Perhaps if I say anything, the detail of this might probably reveal the organization. But later on, you know, some, when some of the scandals came out in some of this big organization, it was very obvious. Because a lot of us had already experienced it internally. And a lot of us had complained and complained and challenged it internally. We had a situation where we, we declared a, a, a vote of no confidence on the entire management. Luckily, it was, it was changed. But because it's, it's institutional and because people don't recognize that these are these are um, deep-seated problems. It, it, they don't address it systema- systemically. And, and it's, this is where the problem lies, because when you deal with it superficially, it continues and it takes different shapes and forms. And, and, and I have had direct personal experiences. Being a researcher who work with um, colleagues with different race or different color, and going to the field, and the way even the people that you're researching, the issues, that you're, the way they treat you, because of your call, not because of your, your experience or your expertise. You will go into a meeting with a colleague from a, um, from a, with, with a different color, just by the, by the way they look and by the way, the way you look, they respect the, 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 the deference that they give to them is different from what you get as a black, as a black person as a person of color in the field. I've had situations where i will go as the lead researcher and with, a, with another junior colleague, and the, the discussion, the attention is all transferred. And this is from, from my own people in, in the continent, from Africans, you know, they will, will be talking more to the white colleague, addressing them and ignoring me completely in the, in the meeting. And even though I'll, I'll be the head of delegation, and uh, it, it's, or they will come and, um, you know, all those, those things that people normally don't see and they don't recognize, uh, it, it just comes out. Or you go in a meeting and the entire meeting, you talking about Africa, and then you will be, I'll be the only one African man in this, in this meeting with a colleague, uh, with colleagues, from different parts of the continent who've never been to Africa, who've never been to, who don't understand. How things work in the continent. Now, even as an African, I don't know how things work in the entire continent. You know, come. So I, I, I will not claim authority or knowledge of the continent. And I have seen that being perpetuated by a lot of my colleagues in, in, in different other institutions and in institutions that I've worked in. And it's so. Some of us challenge this, Some of us brought these kind of issues to the fore. And uh, but it's one thing to challenge, one thing to question, it's another thing to be listened to. And uh, we have situations where the, the leadership of these institutions, they, they, they give you the space to talk, but they don't give you the ears to listen to what you say. And, uh, and until people listen, and listen with a view to changing attitude, perceptions, and actions, it will continue to perpetrate you know, this behavior and some, sometimes it's subconscious. People, because of ignorance, they don't actually know that what they're doing is wrong. That some of the, the racial biases are actually offensive. And, and because they, they have been swimming in this pool of, of privilege, and because they've been swimming in the pool of privilege, they don't understand what people from the other side, people of color are experiencing on a daily basis. And uh, orientation is key. Conscientization is really important, but also the ability and the willingness of people to accept that they there is privilege and they are having those privilege, they will never be able to understand and accept and move. So this the whole notion of privilege also needs to be unpacked in the development in the human rights or humanitarian sector.
3: Brilliant. You were saying about some of the struggles also you face internally also and this is just my experience and i just wanted to know how you have seen this happen that if you have a sense of human rights means you value people's individuality so you want to empower them but as traditionally how the societies over there in eastern places or African places are set up that they are very uh, strongly connected and sometimes that somehow sometimes go against each other. So even though you're trying to empower and you're trying to help, but that actually somehow becomes a a lot of resistance when we, I mean, I don't know if you have faced it and how have you um, dealt with it in your life?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the resistance coming from a number of, of factors and one of which I mentioned earlier is the 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 privilege, the, the ignorance, but it has to do with power um, rather. And when people feel that you you're challenging the, the the power that they have, that they feel that they've earned, and questioning um, injustice is 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 a form of questioning power. Questioning discrimination, you you it's a form of questioning power, and. Uh, until people are ready to let go of the power that they have, the power that they enjoy, and the authority that they, that have, they have been benefiting from, will always resist. So for me, uh, it's, this is where they, they, you have to use a combination of approach. There's no, there's no one size, there's no one style to, to effecting change. And one of the things that we did, in one of the organizations that I was um, a, a staff rep, was, you know, the, the typical petitioning, you know, writing and, and petitioning and boycotting and protesting. And, but if you are fighting a battle on your own, sometimes even people in your own space, people that you feel like should be supporting you, you will not get the support because people, opportunities are very rare these days in the sector. And we, we love what we do in the sector. You don't want to leave the sector or the institution because of the experience that you're having. So a lot of people are scared to lose jobs, uh, scared to lose their jobs, so they don't speak up, they don't show solidarity when you're challenging systemic or institutional racism uh, and and, and, and biases. So one way of doing it is to reaching out and speaking to those people. I remember um, speaking to uh, a colleague who was experiencing uh, a similar problem and they were the only one who challenged the, the, the racism and the, the very blatant act of racism by their supervisor. And they tried to get support from their other colleagues but nobody was willing to. So they came and uh, they spoke to me and said, what, what can you do in this kind of situation? I said, try and speak to them, you know, bilaterally. Because one, they might be doing this out of ignorance. Two, they might not want to be seen to be openly challenged in front of their subordinates, and but also three, it, it, it might just be, sometimes it's not, it's, it's, it is the, the indoctrination. People grow up in, in, in um, they're nurtured in a way that they will not understand what most of the stuff that they're doing is, 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 um, is wrong. So exposure, cultural exposure. So having that conversation with them in a way that does not come across as confrontational or as questioning helps in some cases. It may not help in all, in all cases. So I think for me, it's, it's about um, using different approaches to let the person know huh, or to let the people know, let the institutions know that this is happening, it, it should not be happening and actions have to be taken. We've had situations where we, we uh, contributed to changing the entire management structure because we spoke out and we spoke to the right people, identifying the influencers in the institution. And, and letting them listen to you, to know that uh, they, they should use their yeah, influence to change things for the better. For everybody, even if it's just one person, it, it, it doesn't mean that, it, it, because it's just one person that in, the, in the minority. No, it, 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 the culture, the systems have to be um, made available and, and, and enabling for everybody. Everybody has to feel safe in their workspace and in their in wherever, they, wherever they find themselves. So uh, I don't know if there is any one particular magic wand that I can transfer to you to to, to like just switch around and change the vision, But d- using different methods and and, uh, and approach, but definitely not not speaking is, is not an approach. You have to speak. At, at, at.
0: Yeah, I mean, Mac, uh, I mean, I um. So we've had previous episodes where we have talked about sort of. Um, Try to give more space to the fact that within this uh, business and human rights, which is the more uh, politically correct way, if you want to say corporate accountability space, um, you know, like how do we actually address our own systemic um, biases, discriminations, racism, and and how actually it, it's interesting because as you've said, um, you know, many of us who are people of color, often we actually unconsciously we actually start to assimilate you know with even if we decide we are not assimilating (laughs) you somehow unconsciously um understand that in in order to advance you somehow modify your 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 behavior you somehow you know you question things but not not so overtly not so directly like you you figure out how being a person of color you can advance you know sort of in a society that is predominantly white Right, so I yes. and, and I, when I you know my personal feeling is when I have reflected back I'm like oh well you know it's while I didn't realize it I had you know adapted and assimilated you know in order to like figured out well this is how I can advance you know this is how I can be successful um and I don't I don't feel like I have always sort of yeah taken out you know that there are issues you know there are things that upset you and they're against your values but you know I have a sometimes, if it didn't directly involve me or involve people I knew, you kind of accommodate and go outside of it. And I think this is one of the massive failures of of you know probably people of my generation sort of who have grown up in predominantly white societies who are non-white. you know it was about yes, we're going to work harder, yes, we'll be better. yes, blah, blah blah blah. So I think it's great that actually this whole systemic racism uh and bias in the system even in this field of human rights is being more exposed and i i think it's really great that actually we should put this on the agenda now and one of the objectives of this podcast is actually to to because it's you know so many people listen to it (laughs) that we actually want to use it you know to challenge the status quo in this space so as as we sort of finished up macvid like what what is it like? You know what you know. Most of our listeners or other students or young people or other professionals in this space at this stage, um, maybe one day we'll go viral and huge. But you know what what is it? What is what are the key? I don't know. You said it is difficult to talk about. What are the key things you think we can do now? You know, as as people who are have can have influence in this space to affect the agenda.
1: Yeah. So I think I think there's a a lot that is also being done by a range of players. You know, I was was just reading um, some article about how um, institutions can help to address racism and uh, and uh, and uh, other forms of uh, social biases in the development sector, in the human rights sector. There's so many um, uh, materials out there, so many, uh, tools out there these days. And, and because again, as I mentioned to Raza earlier is because people are speaking up and, and, and in the past people were absorbing and are internalizing the problem and finding excuses for themselves. And so, you know, to just, um, ignore the problems that were been perpetrated by others you know, situations where people are giving excuse for the wrongs of others, you know, just to move on in, in, in the space. But what has happened in the last, um, past 10 years, actually, last decade, is people are no longer scared to speak yeah. out. People are writing. And, uh, and that actually, that is one thing that um, is really important, where you, people use your space, whatever space that you have, whether it's internally or externally, to write about some of this. Because some people are better at articulating their concerns and their issues in in, in written text than than orally. And uh, and I know that one institution that I worked with, one of the ways that we were able to even get people to speak up was to ask them to write anonymously. Write their experiences and just share it to a a platform so that one, there was no, that was the, the fear of backlash was was minimized, and where staff will get picked out and and uh, and then being, being singled out because they were speaking out but we that, that did not stop people from being singled out anyway, so what I think writing is one and mobilizing you know reaching out to institutions that have done relatively better you know in in increasing diversity and in accommodating the, the the diverse um and uh, the differences in race and, 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 and culture, and, and promoting that within the institution, just to, to get them to share their experiences, so that you celebrate this thing. and and uh, to 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 also promote uh, uh, the fact that acknowledging that there, there's been a wrong, a wrongful way of dealing with diversity, should should not be a problem. You know, institutions should should be. Uh, comfortable in acknowledging that, yes, we, 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 have, we messed up in this particular area. We messed up in dealing with this particular complaint, and we, we, we are happy to do X, Y, and Z. But institutions are so scared to take responsibility, and that, for me, is, is the big problem. Because people feel taking responsibility or acknowledging that they, they had messed up, we will end the war. No! A lot of people have come out and spoken out, of, and actually, it helps. To ensure that people feel comfortable in working in the institution, if you can um, um, acknowledge, you know, self recognition self-acknowledgement, because it's very important. Paulo Ferreira once said, "Critical self-reflection is the best form of advancement." Institutions should do critical self-reflection so that they they deal with I mean, the wrongs in their own I mean, in their own spaces, and individuals should also find ways to coalesce, you know, reach out to other people. You know, don't don't try and, and keep the, the, the problems in your head and, and find excuses for other people. Try and speak out to people, you know, like what's the, the, the podcast, this idea of the podcast is actually a very good one because it helps people to know this is, they're not just unique in their problems. It, it happens and it's happening even as we speak in, in, different, in different places. And uh, what we should be looking at is how we find ways to come together, mobilize together, to not just resist it, but to transform the situation for the better. You know, because there's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of, but why should we always be resisting? Why should we not be advancing our own, the values that actually work? The values that should actually make um, what what Razi called, you know, the, the respect for individuality and humanity. You know, advancing those values, advancing those those issues, rather than just resisting the hate, resisting the 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 the. the, the, the bad cultural practices, racism. We've passed the resistance stage. This is advancement. And the best form of, uh, actually, um, defense is to attack. And and not in that that, um, violent um, sense of the word, but it's to promote, to project the things that actually are the the core notions of humanity, the core notions of human advancements. Let's advance them. Let's, Let's push them forward. Let's project them. Let's promote them in the way that populates the minds of everybody. And then people will not have the option of choosing objectivity The only option they will have is to accept it and live in one um, um, society.
2: Yeah, Markman, as you, as you just said, use your space, whatever that a space is. And uh, I you know i want to thank you for this fascinating conversation as we launch our new season of the rights of others um, now that uh, our students are back in um, the virtual classrooms, most of them, and uh, now that uh, we have a whole new cohort of uh, people that have chosen to study international human rights, have chosen to study corporate accountability, has chosen to study the fight against um, transnational organized crime. I want to I want to finish up this podcast with with the sentence that you said when you said, you know, not using your voice is not an option, not speaking up is not an option. So. I have to thank you so much for for your words, for your um, candid approach to yourself, your role, and your work in transitional justice and corporate accountability. An absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank so you much.
1: very much. Thank you very much. The thank pleasure is all mine.
0: I much. really do appreciate this. <laughs> all right. Keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you.